Tonight, Donald Trump put one of his biggest legal headaches before the nation's highest court. Earlier this evening, Trump's lawyers filed an appeal to the Supreme Court in the ongoing court battle over his alleged mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Trump undoubtedly is hoping to get a favorable ruling from the court's six conservative justices, three of whom Trump appointed. Now, Trump's lawyers are not explicitly seeking to prevent DOJ investigators from looking at the 100 or so classified documents taken from his beach club, but they are attempting to get the review of classified documents back before the court-appointed special master, which could potentially throw some sand in the gears of the department's investigation. And despite recent reporting that Trump's legal team was perhaps looking to soften its tone in this case, the filing today by Trump's lawyers is filled with more angry screeds against the Department of Justice. They accuse the department of, quote, feigned concern about purported classified records in order to pin some offense on Trump. It is the latest in a series of aggressive and bellicose moves by Trump, which he's employed for a very long time to move away from scandals and legal quandaries. And it's more evidence of the mindset with which he approaches both the powers of the presidency and the keeping of the nation's secrets. In a post on his social media website following the filing today, Trump told his followers, I want my documents back. That's what he said. I want my documents back. Because Trump still believes that the classified government records seized from his home, his beach club, belong to him and him alone. Now today, veteran New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman has released a new book about Donald Trump's life and time in office. It's called Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. And the book is fill, filled and full of previously unreported stories about Trump's erratic behavior in the White House, including new t- details about What else? Trump's mishandling of classified information. In one passage, Haberman describes how, as president, Trump battled with his own national security team over his desire to play fast and loose with sensitive secrets, including by tweeting out pictures of things he knew were classified. Trump tweeted a sensitive picture of damage at an Iranian space facility without waiting for officials to ink out classified details because he liked how the image looked. If you take out the classification, that's the sexy part, Trump protested as they tried to make changes. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly tried to prevent intelligence from being taken upstairs to the president or left in Trump's possession after briefings. Trump's behavior illustrated why Kelly was concerned. Trump waived items such as his letters with Kim Jong-un, which he appeared to believe the North Korean leader had himself written. He would waive those at visitors to the Oval Office, including reporters. In an interview with Haberman last fall, Trump appeared to deny taking those letters from the North Korean leader leader with him to Mar-a-Lago, telling her that, no, I think that's in the archives. Those love letters were recovered from Mar-a-Lago by the National Archives a few months later. In the course of her reporting for this book, Haberman also reported on Trump's penchant for throwing paper records in the toilet, literally. She obtained these previously released images of presidential notes Trump attempted to flush down the toilet in an apparent violation of the Presidential Records Act. There is more, of course. The book paints a vivid picture of a man who seemed to have little, if any, respect for classified material, who lied with little hesitation, who flouted institutional norms, who flushed important documents down the toilet. Is it any wonder that we are where we are here, with thousands of government documents apparently stored in a basement at Trump's beach club? If anyone could have seen this coming, 
it is maybe Maggie Haberman. And boy, is there a lot to unpack in her new book. Joining us now is the woman herself, New York Times senior political reporter Maggie Haberman. She's the author of, of course, the brand new book out today, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. I have been waiting for you to come back into this building and sit on a set with me. It's been a long time, my friend. It's good to see you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. It is so chock full of information, but it also paints a full picture of the man, not just at the start of his presidency, but the sort of genesis of Donald Trump as a political animal, as a presence in our sort of pop culture, like cultural landscape, if you will. I got to ask you, as someone who knows him well, who's talked to him, I mean, you're in some ways, people think you are this sort of singular voice (laughs) on all things Trump. When you look at what's happened at Mar-a-Lago, when you look at the various defenses he's employed, does any of this surprise you? No, because and and I I write about this in the book and I want to make clear there are so many people who have done so much work on Donald Trump over the decades. And I was really fortunate to be able to look at their work and try to build this broader portrait. But Trump is a is a person of a few moves, a handful of moves. Mm -hmm. And, And the challenge for people around him is figuring out which one he's using at any given moment. And it can sometimes be unclear. But what we are seeing with what he did with the taking the Mar a Lago documents and then how he has handled addressing questions about it is entirely in keeping with his DNA over the course of his life. What if, I mean, the the disregard with which he treated these documents and the disorganization, too, I think it, it would be shocking to most people on the outside. Was it shocking to you? I mean, it's sort of when you look at the toilet filled with documents, how can any of it be surprising? But has any of it, any of the actions that he apparently undertook, has any of that surprised you? What surprised me was the volume of material that he had. That continues to really stun me about this story is, you know, in that first tranche of boxes that he returned to the National Archives, they discovered that there were 184 classified documents. Actually, I'm not sure if it was they discovered or DOJ discovered, but it was discovered that there were 184 individual classified documents, which comprised, I think, more than 700 pages. Yeah. And then that wasn't it. Then there were more that they retrieved in response to a subpoena in June. That subpoena was issued in May for remaining classified material. Trump's lawyer signed an attestation saying, yep, that's it. We've given back all the documents with classified markings. And then, of course, we found out after an August 8th search that, in fact, there were many, many other documents. And so the the volume Yeah, like 11,000 documents. There were were 11,000 pages and there were more than 100 additional individual documents with classified markings. Right. And remember, each of those documents can have several pages. So that was really surprising to me and and continues to be surprising. Right. It's not just Kim Jong-un's love letter. It's not Shaquille O'Neal's shoe. It's not the various mementos that he liked to wave around and talk about. It's like a massive amount of paper that he has squirreled away, which sort of implies some intentionality in all of this. But I wonder if one can even draw those conclusions. Well, you know, one of the things that was striking about this, Alex, was that in those boxes there it was it was all jumbled together. And the DOJ has talked about this. There were news clips right in with you know, confidential material and, and shoes, right? Razor blades, other, other, umbrellas, all sorts of other material. And so he, one of the things about him, and this is an effect he had in the White House. It's an effect he's had on our, our political culture. He has this flattening effect where everything is kind of the same and contextless. And I write about this in the book. Um, that is what this reminds me of with these documents. It's all the same. These, these classified material, they're the same as these news clips about my time as president and my razors and my golf balls and my, you know, I think there was a raincoat, I was told, yeah. in one of the boxes. Yes. And so this is of a piece with who he is. But it, it's a reminder that things that other people consider sacred, 
He doesn't. Yeah. And and that the rules don't apply to him. I want to read another excerpt from his book that has been less from your book that has been less discussed, which is the degree to which he was making an end run around the sort of um, checks and balances or checks that exist, especially when it concerns classified information and national secrets. Right. On more than one occasion, when Trump agreed to relinquish his personal phone, he managed to acquire another. Advisors believed he had sent a staffer who had worked for him prior to the presidency to buy one at a store without any of the standard security precautions. At one point, Trump left his phone in a golf cart at his New Jersey club. A senior White House lawyer notes, a senior White House lawyer's notes documenting the frantic frantic search for the misplaced phone for six hours specified that it was not our phone, apparently meaning it was not a government-issued device. So it sounds like Trump sent someone to like Verizon to get a phone for him so that he could make calls that were kind of unmonitored and then promptly loses it. He was very keen on keeping his own phone. And and kudos to my former colleague, Alex Burns, who was actually the first person to hear that there was some issue with a phone and a golf cart, mm-hmm. which we initially reported that detail a couple of years ago. But there's some new reporting here related to it. Uh, you know, aides were a little stunned that he would suddenly have another phone after they had gotten him to have one away. And it was, I think, not just that he you know, didn't want people knowing what he was doing. He didn't trust the government. Mm -hmm. I think one of the fascinating things about the Donald Trump presidency, and I explore this, is just the deep level of paranoia Mm -hmm. and what that meant for somebody who was overseeing this apparatus that he didn't trust. He didn't trust the government and the government didn't trust him because at the end of his presidency, we're talking about someone. I mean, we read it in the introduction to the segment like John Kelly doesn't believe that Trump can have access to these documents. They start taking away classified briefings so that he can't squirrel them away into a shoebox in the the Oval Office. I mean, that's a staggering development. We know that there's always been this institutional deep state Mm -hmm. uh, desire to protect Trump from himself. But the degree to which they really didn't trust him with anything, it sounds like. No, there, and there was this is an ongoing issue with the classified material where he would sometimes, and my colleagues and I actually wrote about this recently, you know, he would ask to keep stuff and, and they weren't really sure why or what it meant and they would try to get things back. But for the most part, they felt as if you can't say no to the president of the United States and mm-hmm. he is the president and he wanted it. Now, his argument would be, and, and his aides or the people closest to him now would say he had a reason not to trust the government. Look what happened in various investigations. And it would go on and on that way. And whatever value those complaints have, it has nothing to do with why he wanted this classified information. This was not all about the Mueller investigation. This was not all about crossfire hurricane and the origins of the Russia probe. This was about all manner of other issues, according to our reporting. And it's still not clear why he picked certain things and why he had it. The impunity. I mean, one of the things that I think is so important about this book is that it contextualizes Trump's decision as a president within the like broader cross currents of his life. You know, the, the person he became became as a as a figure in New York City society and also who he was as a child. Mm-hmm. You when we talk about this impunity, that's not something that was kind of like gifted to him as president. It's something he always had. And this is another story that I think is really important, kind of the Citizen Kane rosebud moment. Well, I'm not going to call it a rosebud moment. I won't put that level of import on it, but it is so indicative of who he becomes later. In Trump's senior year of high school, the school administration gave Trump a promotion to captain of a company. 
of a company. This is in his military school. Classmates questioned whether he deserved the prestigious post, and they suspected it was granted to him because of his father's influence at the school. As the captain, Trump was charged with leading other boys in the unit, but he did so at a remove. A former classmate named Sandy McIntosh wrote, when one student in a company was brutally hazed by another, the story at the school was that Donald Trump stayed in his room listening to his record player. The hazed student complained to his parents and Trump was removed from his position. Trump refused to to concede defeat, insisting that he had really been given a promotion to another title. I mean, the shadows, the echoes of what later transpires after the election in 2020 are impossible to miss. And yet, can you talk a little bit more about the person he was even in his teen years when it came to questions of loss and defeat? I think you raised a question. I just want to go back to her point that I want to go back to, which is about his sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that people lose track of this because he talks like somebody who Uh, You know, a lot of voters who support him will say he sounds like me. He expresses thoughts like me. The reality is that he was the son of a well-off man and he grew up as a child of privilege. And that, you know, that in a certain way, there are people who grow up with privilege who don't expect that systems don't apply to them. But that wasn't him. And he expected that things were always going to be set up for him. And he refused to accept the world in a way that was not on his terms. Now, I think he did more earlier when he was a younger kid. But by the time he gets to the end of high school, you know, he has pretty much figured out who he is. And he doesn't have to accept the world as it is in his twisted mind. I mean, there's also a part of this book where we're talking about where you talk about how Trump decides he's going to refuse to leave the White House in the days after the 2020 election loss. And uh, that is a remarkable anecdote that you talk about. And it is also something that people have criticized you for in terms of having that in the book right now, as opposed to when this whole, you know, attempt to steal the election transpired. Talk to me a little bit about how you make and made decisions as far as what to leave in the book, what to report out and the sort of process by which you did that. Sure. So I turned in earnest to this project uh, after the second impeachment trial, which ended, I think, in February of 2021. Mm -hmm. And A book is different. A book takes time. I wanted to paint a broader contextual portrait of a person's life and and not just a person's life, but of our country, of how he came to be, how a a celebrity obsessed culture came to see him as an avatar for what it for at least half the country, what it wanted and certainly a party, what it wanted, uh, how he had infused himself into the, the pop culture fabric for such a long period of time. And that takes time. It's a process of going back and talking to sources over and over again and learning more information. Uh, you know, I provided a significant amount of reporting to the times Mm -hmm. throughout the process. Uh, and that, and that wasn't different. Um, but it's just an entirely different experience doing a book. And and one thing I, I, I think about a lot was I spoke to several years ago, I talked to someone who I knew had cooperated a bunch of these books that had been coming out during the presidency. And there was a story in one of them that the person had refused to tell me. And I had caught wind of it or I, there was there was some reason why I was upset. But but I asked a question of why do people do this? Why do you talk to for books and you won't for a daily report? And their answer was there's no immediacy to it. It's not coming out tomorrow. It's I'm history. talking it's and it's history. just yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's it's going to it's a problem for future me was essentially what this person was suggesting. And I think that informs a lot about why people are willing to talk when they do. 
Interesting. I mean, that, yeah, there's a decision on the part of the source yeah. to say this is going to happen yeah. in the future and the blowback I catch, if yeah. I catch any, will be in some future undetermined time That's and right. place. When you talk about um, Trump and the future mm-hmm. and what's going to mm-hmm. happen, I want to play some exclusive audio that you have generously given us regarding Trump and potentially his greatest opponent, his greatest challenger, um, if he should run again in 2024, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This is from your interview with him, I believe, in what? It was uh, last year. Last year. September of last year. Let's take a listen to that. Well, has he said to you that he wouldn't run if you ran? I didn't. I've never asked him. I've never. But if if, uh, let's put it this way. I think I'd win very easily against anybody. Well, so let me ask you a question. I'm then. at 98% of the approval. So it's like back to Trump's approval ratings. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think he thinks of Ron DeSantis? I don't think he thinks very highly of him. He thinks he made him. He thinks he created him for the Republican Party, uh, for the governorship of Florida. And he thinks that he ought to be deferring to Trump. I mean, Trump's view of his endorsement to people is a, you know, he thinks that it, it vaults people, you know, over the line in a primary. And, and often it does, it does, to be clear. I mean, his his. He's not wrong when he talks about his strength in the Republican Party. That's very real. And I think that's something people have really struggled to accept, is that just because Trump says so many things about himself that are not true, and he does, it doesn't mean he's weak within the party the way a lot of his detractors hope that he is. And to be clear, it will help them in the primary. Whether it gives them the win in the general is another thing, but his party, his power in the party is almost undiluted. It it is eroded somewhat, but if he runs, I think you would likely see a lot of people who say they would not be with him come back. And I'm not clear that Ron DeSantis wants to go up against the Donald Trump meat grinder uh, because most people have really struggled with that. It is is a meat grinder, among many other things. Maggie, you are... I mean, I don't know if this is a badge you wear. You have chronicled this man in a way that literally, I mean, there are a million books written about Trump, but you have compiled something that's very special and is a very deep and important dive into the man himself. Um, A testament to your work as a journalist. It's great to see you and talk with you about this. I wish we had two more hours to chat. New York Times senior political reporter Maggie Haberman. Again, her new book is Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Thank you for being here, Maggie. And one final thing in Maggie's new book, she describes a discussion she had with Trump last year in which the topic turned to Georgia Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker, and in particular allegations that Walker had threatened women. Trump told her that, quote, 10 years ago, maybe it would have been a problem. 20 years ago, it would have been a bigger problem. I don't think it's a problem today. Just ahead, Steve Kornacki joins me to discuss the latest allegations dogging Walker's candidacy and whether it will have an effect in one of the most important Senate races in the country. But next, Donald Trump calls on the Supreme Court to give him a lifeline in the spiraling Mar-a-Lago investigation. We will have more details on that coming up. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. 
on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Late this afternoon, Donald Trump filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court, asking the court to allow the special master, Judge Raymond Deary, to review the roughly 100 classified documents that the FBI seized from his beach club in August. Trump's asking the Supreme Court to block part of a ruling by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, the court that ruled against him. Last month, that court said the Justice Department can use those classified documents in its investigation and that those documents did not fall under the special master's review. While Trump is not technically asking the high court to stop the DOJ from using the classified documents in the DOJ's investigation, he is now asking that the court make those documents part of the special master's review, which ultimately could complicate the DOJ's investigation into the seemingly pretty important classified documents, or at least we think. In its argument tonight, Team Trump writes, quote, President Trump was still the president of the United States when any documents bearing classification markings were delivered to his residence. At that time, he was the commander in chief of the United States. As such, his authority to classify or declassify information bearing on national security flowed from this constitutional investment of power in the president. So the argument is basically Trump has all the power. He can declassify what he wants, when he wants. He can convert a presidential record, even apparently a classified one, to a personal one. If the Supreme Court grants Trump's request and allows Judge Deary to review those classified documents, that also means, and this is important, that Team Trump would get to see those classified documents. The Supreme Court tonight has ordered the Justice Department to respond to Trump's request by next Tuesday. Joining us now is Charlie Savage, New York Times national security and legal reporter. Charlie, thank you so much for being here tonight. I need you to help me understand exactly what can happen to these classified documents as they pertain to the Justice Department. If the Supreme, talk to me about the import here in terms of the, the department's investigation and what Trump is trying to do. Sure. So the status quo right now, after the appeals court's intervention to remove these documents from the special master, the Trump appointed judge had ordered, is that there is unfettered access for these 103 documents with classification markings. Criminal investigators can present them to a grand jury. They can ask witnesses questions based on their contents. They can pursue criminal charges uh, based on their mishandling or obstruction and not returning them. They can try to figure out what happened to the documents that were in the empty folders that had classification banners that were stored in the jumble alongside these ones they were able to recover. So Trump is trying to partially roll back what the appeals court did in in unleashing the government to continue with its investigation in this area. He's saying for now. You can put the we want the special master's review to look at these things about to see whether they're subject to executive privilege or 
attorney-client privilege. That means we, the Trump people, need to be able to see them. It means we need to have security clearances to be able to do that, et cetera. It's a, it's a huge mess for the special master if the Supreme Court were to grant what he's asking for. On the other hand, it is not a huge mess at this stage for the Justice Department because they're not asking the Supreme Court to tie its hands again with respect to these documents. Okay, so if the Department of Justice can continue on with its investigation, what then happens if the Supreme Court grants this request and Deary gets to then review the classified documents? That's happening in parallel as the Department of Justice is is doing its own investigation. Where do those two things intersect? I would assume that if Deary somehow decides that, you know, some of these classified documents are indeed privileged, that then affects the DOJ's investigation. Is that right? That's exactly the right question to ask, because that's where this gets tricky. If uh, the Justice Department takes investigative steps based on these documents, they knock on people's doors, they learn something else that leads to something else that leads to something else. And then down the road, uh, it's not this, just Judge Deary, it would be Judge Cannon really deciding that something in that tranche was, in fact, privileged and they should not have looked at it. It creates opportunities for all kinds of mischief. What does she then do? Because these investigators have been exposed to information that she has decided they should not have seen. But that could be, you know, in December or January that she makes that decision. So all kinds of things could have happened by then. At a minimum, does she say those people have to be removed from the investigation? Does she say the whole thing is uh, fruit of the poison uh, tree, as they say, and therefore stuff has to be thrown out? Does it give the Trump legal defense down the road if he's indicted over this stuff? an opportunity to investigate the investigation and try to turn the tables back on the government and say, you used information you had no right to use, et cetera, et cetera. And and therefore these charges have to be thrown out or something, some kind of sanction like that. So it is very tricky because of that possibility dangling uh, if these documents do get resubmitted for privilege review. That, That said, the government seems very confident that the idea that executive privilege has anything to say here, asserted by a former president over the objections of the current president to keep executive branch information from being reviewed by the Justice Department. Part of the executive branch is for a criminal investigation. They think it's crazy to even suggest that it might be the case. So that if Judge Cannon were to rule that way, they would have a strong appeal. But of course, they would rather just not have to get into such a mess at all, Alex. I am sure they would rather not have to get into such a mess. This case now goes, uh, it's directed to Clarence Thomas, who oversees the 11th Circuit, and then he is likely to review that to the full Supreme Court. We will see how this all plays out. Charlie Savage, New York Times national security and legal reporter. Thanks for your wisdom tonight, Charlie. We needed it. Thank you. Up next, the story that is rocking Republican politics and once would have been enough to doom a Republican candidate's chances. But in Donald Trump's Republican Party, will reporting that Herschel Walker paid his girlfriend to have an abortion in 2009, will that information even affect his candidacy? The great Steve Kornacki joins us to understand what is happening in the great state of Georgia coming up next. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news 
and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Do you remember about a month ago when South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham decided to take a big, crazy swing on abortion policy and propose a national ban on abortion? Do you remember that? He said explicitly that if Republicans get control of the Senate this November, they would federally outlaw abortion after 15 weeks. It was almost like he was trying to make an ad for the Democrats right before the midterms. When that happened, basically every Republican running for election or re-election distance themselves from Senator Graham. I say basically every Republican because there was one very notable exception, Georgia Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker. Walker told Politico at the time that he would back Graham's federal ban, saying that he was a proud pro-life Christian who would always stand up for unborn children. Well, last night, the Daily Beast reported that in 2009, Herschel Walker urged his then-girlfriend to get an abortion and then paid for the procedure himself. Now, I should mention that NBC has not independently confirmed that reporting, and Herschel Walker denies the story. But because it is such a major allegation against Walker, the Daily Beast appears to have really done their due diligence in getting the receipts. Literally. They verified this woman's claims with a receipt from the abortion clinic a bank deposit receipt with an image of a signed personal check from Herschel Walker and the Get Well Soon card that Walker sent that check inside of. The Daily Beast also corroborated the details of the claims with a friend the woman told at the time of the abortion. So if this reporting holds up, it shows a massive amount of hypocrisy that you would think might tank a political campaign in a normal year, but especially in a year where abortion is front and center on the ballot. But this is not a normal year, and national Republicans are doubling down on Herschel Walker. The president, the president of the Mitch McConnell-aligned PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund, said today that they are, quote, full speed ahead in Georgia. The National Republican Senate Committee put out a statement calling the story a smear and saying Republicans will stand with Herschel Walker. This race could decide the control of the Senate. It is now too late to pick a new Republican candidate. For that party right now, Herschel Walker is too big to fail. Joining us now is Steve Kornacki, NBC national political correspondent. Steve, thank you for being with us here tonight. And I hope that you are enjoying the reprieve from being at the big board. I'm thrilled to have you sit down sit down, and have a conversation with me, my friend. Um, will you tell me about how the contours in Georgia have been shaping up? I mean, do you think there have been a number of scandals that Herschel Walker has, um, I guess, in some ways weathered? Have any of them redounded to Reverend Raphael Warnock's benefit? Well, Warnock, of course, being the Democratic candidate here. Yeah, I mean, I think the context for this was that there was what you're referring to, the, the trouble that Walker had had even before the story. He was paying somewhat of a price for it in the mm-hmm. polls. If you if you look at the Senate race in Georgia, Walker versus Warnock, and you look at the governor's race, Kemp versus Abrams, in the polling average, there's an eight-point difference between those two races. Kemp, the Republican governor, is running eight points better, even before this, than Herschel Walker on the Senate side. So there was a gap between those candidates. When you looked inside the polling, Herschel Walker's negative ratings 
were particularly high. There'd been some other revelations early in the campaign. His performance on the campaign trail had not exactly been reassuring. Yeah. So I think he's been struggling as a candidate. Now, he's running in a state with a, until the 2020 election had been a pretty red state at the presidential level, went for Biden in 2020, but barely. So in the midterm climate, that helps just any Republican. And so he's certainly been in contention for this seat. But I look at it as a situation where he was already sort of testing the limits of voters in Georgia. And I don't look at I know we live in a very different era of politics now than maybe we did a generation ago. So the question is raised, will this really matter? This doesn't have to matter much more than a point or two points, perhaps, to make a significant difference in a race like this. Warnock's numbers have been basically kind of holding steady throughout the late, late election season. Is that accurate? And like, so is it more that, I mean, are we seeing a split ticket here when you talk about Kemp's numbers being high and Warnock's being steady, where you're going to maybe have Georgia Republicans that are pulling the lever for Brian Kemp, the Republican as governor, but then voting for Raphael Warnock, the Democrat in the Senate race? That's what we're seeing in the polling right now. And, and I don't I actually think it's not too hard to imagine who that voter is, because you have to remember that earlier this year, yeah. Brian Kemp went to war with Donald Trump. And Brad Raffensperger, the Republican secretary of state, went to war with Trump and they both won Republican primaries against Trump backed opponents. So if you're a voter in Georgia who doesn't really like Joe Biden, doesn't really like the Democrats, but also doesn't like Donald Trump, that's a kind of voter that, that Georgia Democrats were able to get to vote for uh, Joe Biden in 2020. That voter may say, hey, Kemp's perfectly acceptable. He right. stood up to Trump. But Walker's a bridge too far. So that's what we've been seeing, I think, in the polling so far, that that disconnect. The other challenge, though, that I think if you're Warnock, he has, he has to finish ahead of, of Walker, obviously. But Georgia's a runoff state. Yeah. And if he doesn't get to 50 percent plus one, there's a libertarian in the race. We've seen this in Georgia many times, poised to get two, three percent of the vote. This could get forced into a runoff. You could be in that same scenario we had after 2020 where Senate control comes down to a Georgia runoff. And then you just look at the dynamics, you know, Walker, Warnock in a runoff. You start to wonder then, does any of the personal stuff matter at all to voters or are they purely voting on party? Because the stakes would be just absolutely clear in that case. Well, you are voting for Senate control. And that runoff would be, I believe, December 6th, December 6th right? Yep. I, I just I got to ask you, does this remind you of Doug Jones and Roy Moore in Alabama? I mean, the flaw, the, the flaw. And I think saying flawed is probably a bit too euphemistic and generous. I mean, given the sort of hypocrisy on display potentially in this sort of latest Herschel Walker, Walker scandal. But I mean, like Doug Jones won that Alabama Senate yeah. seat by the hair of his chinny chin chin. Is this deja vu all over again? That, that's, it, it's the other thing to keep in mind, too. It is Doug Jones did win in that December 2017 yes. race, and he barely won. You yes. know? So it's, it certainly had an impact in that race. And then without that story, without that story about uh, uh, that Roy Moore would have been well positioned there. Um, but again, I think we're talking about impact here. If, if there is impact from this story, my, my guess is it would be minimal, a point or two. But like I'm saying, given that he's not he's not Brian Kemp, he's not running seven points ahead of Warnock right now. He's running a point behind Warnock. One or two points, if you're Herschel Walker, is absolutely critical. Literally every vote matters in the state of Georgia. Every vote matters, period, but especially at this moment in that state. Steve Kornacki, NBC National political correspondent, my friend, it is good to see you. Thanks for your you time too. tonight. You too. Happy to be here. Up next here tonight, brand new justice, Supre Katanji Brown-Jackson, Supreme Court justice. She schools Alabama, Alabama's solicitor general as the court takes up a challenge that could gut the Voting Rights Act. We will be right back.
President Reagan today signed a 25-year extension of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The president, who originally favored only a 10-year extension and came late to endorse this version, had nothing but praise for it today. The right to vote is the crown jewel of American liberties, and we will not see its luster diminished. That was President Reagan in 1982, and we have seen the luster of that jewel, the right to vote, diminished twice in recent memory. First in 2013 with Shelby versus Holder, when the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, when the court invalidated the part of the law that required states with a history of racial discrimination to get federal approval before changing the way they hold elections. Then last year, the Supreme Court ruled in another case, making it harder for minority groups to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to challenge voting laws. Today, the Republican-led state of Alabama took another swipe at the Voting Rights Act with a case at the Supreme Court, one that centers on whether Alabama's new congressional map violates another part of Section 2. That statute prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race. Black people make up more than a quarter of Alabama's population. But the state's new congressional map only designates one majority black district, District 7. It's the awkwardly placed blue splotch right on this map here. The groups challenging this map argued that it is diluting their voting power by creating a supermajority in that one district and spreading black voters out across the other six. But if the justices side with the state of Alabama, that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act should not require the state to consider race when drawing its congressional map, well, then that would further erode the protections that the VRA is supposed to be providing to historically underrepresented voters. Joining us now is Janae Nelson, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She was present for oral arguments at the Supreme Court this morning. Ms. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think a lot of folks are very worried about what is going to happen here, given the court's track record. You were in the room. How did you read some of the comments from conservative justices that seem to be somewhat skeptical of the case that the state of Alabama was making here? Yeah, well, I have the pleasure of being in the courtroom because one of our attorneys was arguing before the court, Duell Ross, an incredible attorney who's been working on voting rights issues in the state of Alabama for years. And what I observed was that even the conservative justices seemed to think that Alabama was engaging in a bit of overreach in suggesting that the standard for interpreting Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, a standard that this very Supreme Court has used for decades, was somehow flawed all of a sudden with no basis uh, for suggesting that the court should change its interpretation of the statute. So what we saw was conservative justices trying to steer the state of Alabama towards a little bit of a narrower path, and Alabama did not seem to want to do that and, and still seemed to want to erode uh, the foundation of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. And I am I hope that the court will not follow Alabama down that very wrong path. When you talk about the narrow path, can you chart out what that actually is? Because if they don't go with the court doesn't follow through with Alabama's proposed, um, you know, the suggestion that they shouldn't have to take race into account when drawing their congressional maps. What could the Supreme do Court do here and what could what damage could the Voting Rights Act sustain in your mind? 
Well, first, I think the easiest path for the court to follow is the one that it charted for itself for many decades, and that is to uh, affirm the lower court's decision in this case. This is a cookie-cutter textbook Section 2 violation. You have black voters, as you described, who comprise 27 percent of the state's population and only are able to elect an op a, a, a candidate of their choice in one out of seven districts. So what the court should do is follow the lower courts, the three-judge panel that said Alabama needs to go back redo its maps and make sure that black voters have more than one district in which they have an opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. Now, the court seemed to question a few different ways in which to go about it. There was lots of conversation about the role of race in determining whether there was a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And to me, that's such a curious question because the Voting Rights Act was enacted very specifically to counter racism and racial effects in our democracy, in our electoral system. So, of course, we're going to think about race and consider race as we enforce the Voting Rights Act and make sure that we aren't continuing to engage in racial discrimination. Right. That was the entire point of the Voting Rights Act, right? Race was central yeah. to it. Uh, our newest Supreme Court justice, Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, brought up the sort of her version of an originalist argument on that front. Is that right? <laughs> I thought of that as kind of a nod to the originalism that is practiced by the conservative members of the court, although this had a distinctly different flair. Yes, I would say uh, Justice Brown Jackson's exquisite discussion of the 14th Amendment was as much for the oralists and the litigants as it was for her colleagues on the court. It was clearly a way in which to show that even if you were to con consider original intent, even if you were to follow the conservative doctrine of originalism, you cannot evade the injustice of this case, that you would still wind up in the right place, recognizing that even the founders, even those who were amending our Constitution uh, and after Reconstruction to ensure that racial discrimination would not continue to weigh this democracy down, that even those individuals were thinking about race. Race. They were confronting the fact of racism in our history and our country and trying to construct a remedy for that. And the Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, as you noted, was was uh, enacted about 100 years later because we didn't quite solve the problem with the Reconstruction Amendments. And so the Voting Rights Act came in to do that work and is still doing that important work today. Indeed, we have not quite solved the problem around voter disenfranchisement in this country and seem to be making more problems as time goes on. Janae Nelson, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, thanks for making time to join us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. One more story before we go. As Ukrainian forces take back their land from Russia and exasperated, Vladimir Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons. How people in Kyiv are reacting and preparing. Coming up next. Stay with us. This was the scene today in a Ukrainian village in the southern region of Kherson. The Ukrainian soldier there shouted, glory to Ukraine, as he draped the country's flag over a building in the newly liberated village. 
in one of the four regions that Vladimir Putin, through sham referendums, declared are now part of Russia. Ukraine's military retook the key city of Lyman in the Donetsk region over the weekend. And in the days since, Ukraine's military has continued pushing back Russian troops in the south and east of the country cutting off strategic supply routes and infrastructure for Russian forces. Ukraine's recent military wins follow a new round of harsh warnings from Russian President Putin, who on Friday declared to defend Russian territory using, quote, all available means. That set off alarm bells across the world and has sent some in Ukraine preparing for the worst. The AP reported today in the Kyiv City Council they are providing evacuation centers with potassium iodine pills in preparation for a potential nuclear attack. Those pills can help people block the absorption of radiation in the aftermath of a nuclear strike. The Biden administration today announced a new security package for Ukraine worth $625 million in military aid. It includes more of the advanced rocket systems that observers credit with helping Ukraine's military begin to turn the tide of war. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. 